Well, it's so good to be with you all. It has been an awesome weekend uh, together, hanging out with your leaders and many of you, and just hearing about all the ways God is moving in this community and through your churches, and by His grace, what He's going to do, amen, what He's going to do in the future. Now, here's where i got to start. How many of you are Kansas City Chief fans? Okay, really? Okay. I was thinking that. Be a little loud. How many Kansas City Chief fans? Okay, there we go. There we go. Okay. I was just thinking, like, you've got to feel pretty good right now if you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan. Let's be honest. I mean, you've got two out of the last four Super Bowls, right? You've got an awesome coach, Andy Reid. Patrick Mahomes, he's an okay quarterback. Uh, no, he's incredible. Uh, the fan base is ridiculous. Is it, is, if you've been to a game, is it really as loud in that stadium as it looks on TV? Like, it, it looks incredible. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you've got to be feeling good if you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan. Now, we have a team in Denver. I don't know if you knew that. Um, called the Denver Broncos. Um, well, let's just be honest and say it's not quite as much fun to be a Broncos fan as a Chiefs fan uh, these days. Uh, they've been kind of a train wreck, to be honest, for several years, but we're starting to find hope again because we have a new coach. We say that like every two years, by the way. But we have a coach by the name of Sean Payton. Now, if you don't know who Sean Payton is, he's widely considered one of the best coaches in the NFL. He coached for the New Orleans Saints, for years, he won a Super Bowl in 2009, and, and so we've got some hope. But, but here's the point why I'm bringing up Sean Payton. One of the things that people both love and hate about Sean Payton is that he is a straight shooter. You know these kinds of people. I mean, he just, he tells it like it is. And as he's come to lead the Broncos, like you listen to any press conference, I mean, he is brutally honest about all the things that are wrong with the organization that need to be changed in order for the Broncos, I love the sound of crying babies, just so you know. I love it. I love it. But just for Broncos uh, to maybe have a shot at the Super Bowl again. Now, here's the thing. There are a lot of Broncos fans who are like, I don't know if I like this guy. Because he's kind of stepping on our toes, right, about the Broncos. But the reality is, does it help anybody at this point, if you're a Broncos fan, to pretend like our Broncos are, like, really good? It doesn't help anybody. We're, like, living in la-la land. And so... I think what, what, what Sean Payton understands is, and this is true in anything, the number one job of a leader is to name reality, to just name reality. And he's come in and he's naming reality about the Broncos and what needs to happen if we're going to turn this thing around. Now, why am I saying all this? Here's why. We're living in a time as Christians where we need to get real honest and name reality about the state of the church in North America the state of the church in the United States of America. Because the reality is, like, while nobody wants to talk about it, it doesn't feel good, I agree, the church in the U.S. is struggling big time. In fact, churches all across the U.S. are dying and closing at a record pace. Let me just give you a few statistics, uh, both from Gallup and the Hartford Institute of Religion Research report this, that in the U.S., Protestants across all denominations, okay, if you were to look at Protestant churches, this would, Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, um, are currently closing 5,000 churches a year in the U.S. At the same time, we're, we're only starting 3,000. And you might be like, that's awesome, we're starting 3,000, but do the math. We're closing 5,000, we're starting 3,000. In fact, since 1950, we have one-third fewer churches in the United States. Uh, right now, when you look at the total number of Protestant churches in the U.S., okay, and you've got a lot of them, by the way, here in Springfield. You've got a lot of churches. 
only 5 to 7%, okay, so 5 to 7 out of 100 are healthy and growing, which means over 90% of churches in the U.S. are plateaued or declining. And sadly, many of these, unless something radical happens in the next one to two years, they're going to close their doors for good within two years. Now, within our own Southern Baptist Convention, so all our churches here are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. We have 47,000 churches with the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Only around 10 to fit. we're a little bit better, but not much. About 10 to 15% of our churches are healthy and growing churches, which means 85 to 90% of our SBC churches are plateaued or declining. In fact, let me just say this. While our denomination is doing really, really good work, and they are, in planting new churches aggressively, and, and, and the work of replanting dying churches is growing all the time, we're so thankful for that. Here's just the hard reality. We are closing 16 churches a week in the United States. So just think about that. Like this morning, there are 16 churches with probably 10 to 20 people who love their church. They love each other the way you love each other. Many of them have been part of churches for 50, 60 years. And they've run out of money. They've run out of steam. And they just can't keep going. And today's going to be the last day they meet. And, and that church will be closed. Many of them will be stripped down. And apartment complexes will go up. And we lose a gospel presence. But here's the thing. Next week, there's going to be another 16. And then the following another week, there's another 16. Now, I, I say that, that should break our hearts, shouldn't it? <laughs> like, as the body of Christ, that should break our hearts. Now, listen, you can hear these stats and get really discouraged really fast until you remember who our God is, amen? Until you remember who our God is, that our God is a God of new life. Our God loves to bring the dead back to life, amen? Just like he brought you back to life from the dead if you're in Christ this morning. This is what he's about. He loves to show his strength in the midst of our weakness. He's a God of revitalization. He's a God of renewal in our own hearts, but also in our churches too. And here's the thing. One of the keys, the absolute keys to seeing the Lord bring new life to churches is getting a fresh vision for radical partnership between churches. Partnership between healthy churches and unhealthy churches. Partnership between large churches and small churches. Partnership between churches that share the same heart and the same passion to reach the lost and to make disciples. Partnership between churches that truly believe we're way better together than we are apart. And that quite frankly, we can do far more together as bodies of Christ than we can alone. And so if churches like ours, if we're going to experience the power of this kind of intentional partnership with other churches, there are two key questions that we have to ask and answer. And this is what I want to focus on in our time together this morning. Okay, let me just tell you what they are. The first question is this. Why should churches partner together? I want to dig into that a little bit. Why should churches partner together? Because if you're not convinced it's that important, you'll never do it as a church. You just won't. The second question follows it, and it's this. What does healthy church partnership take? What does it take if we're actually going to lean into this as believers, as churches, whether you're in Denver, you're in Springfield, wherever you are? And so what I want to offer here are five reasons why partnership 
between churches is so important. And the first reason is this. Partnership is biblical. In this room, we love the Bible, amen? We believe it's the word of God. We submit to the Bible as the word of God. The reality is that church partnership is ultimately God's idea. This is God's idea. And when we go to scripture, we see this idea of churches and church leaders partnering together all over the place. In fact, let me just give you a few examples. In Philippians, we see the Apostle Paul's deep love. He loves this church in Philippi. Part of the reason he loves it is he planted it. He started it early in his ministry. And he opens this letter of Philippians to these believers in this way. Listen to Philippians 1, 3 to 5. Paul writes, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy. He was a joyful guy. When he thought about this church, there was joy. I, I always pray with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Until now. You see, the partnership Paul had with this church, man, it was a source of joy for him. And we learn later on in the letter that this partnership involved the sharing of leaders. It involved the sharing of, of resources that were needed. It was rooted in radical sharing. In fact, Dave Harvey, he writes this about Paul and his passion for partnership. Because you can't read the New Testament and just and not see Paul's passion for churches and partnership all over the place. He says, Paul labored tirelessly to keep churches informed and connected. He deployed his helpers to the same ends. Paul not only argued that church members are indispensably related to one another, but he also believed that churches cannot be totally independent entities. Do you hear that? Not if they want to remain resilient. Not if they want leaders who last. Not if they want to see the mission expand through planting, and I would offer replanting, renewable and multiplying churches. And he's totally right. He's totally right. In fact, we see this, this importance of partnership in many places. We could take all morning, we won't do it, but just to go and do a study on partnership in the New Testament. Let me just highlight some. In Acts chapter 8, we see the church in Jerusalem sending the apostles Peter and John to Samaria in order to minister to the believers there to help strengthen the church. In 1 Corinthians 4 and Philippians 2, we see individuals and teams like sent out on short-term trips for the purpose of bringing hope and bringing encouragement to churches that are really, really discouraged. In Acts 11, we see the church in Antioch sending money and sending other resources to help Christians in Judea who were battling a famine. They were experiencing a famine at that time. In Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 10, we see churches and church leaders working to advance the gospel together through planting new churches, going into areas where the gospel was not known that, that many might be saved and bow at the knee of King Jesus. Look, we could go on and on. We could look at many examples. Here's my point, and this is why I begin here. You're never going to get fired up about partnership. You're never going to be convicted about partnership until you understand as a Bible-believing Christian that this is God's idea. This is biblical. This is what the church is called to be about. In fact, I put it this way. It's God's idea and it's God's desire. And if it's God's desire, man, I want that to be my desire, don't you? Here's number two. Partnership provides the encouragement and hope that churches need from one another. 
Now listen, we know this as individuals in congregations. Like we read the New Testament letters, we see all the one another's, right? We're called to spur one another on, we're called to build one another up, we're called to encourage one another, because we all need it, don't we? (laughs) We need that kind of support, man, life is stinking hard. We need the grace of the gospel, we need our brothers and sisters who love Jesus and will love us. Life is really hard. Guess what? The same is true for churches, for congregations, Partnership provides encouragement and hope that churches need from one another. Let me just give you an example of this, okay? So a few years ago, our church, Calvary Church in Inglewood, Colorado, right outside of Denver, we, were, uh, we, were, they, we got a phone call from a church, First Baptist Church in La Junta, Colorado. You probably never know where La Junta is. It's a little town um, in uh, south southeast corner of, of Colorado, um, probably about six 7,000 people. And First Baptist Church is like, if you go into this little town, it's like the most beautiful building. It's right there in the middle of town. And you can imagine there was a day when that thing, they were killing it. (laughs) And there were kids running around, and there was a VBS, and kids coming to Jesus, and they were doing outreach events, and people were getting baptized. You can see, imagine the day. Well, that day is long gone, okay? When we got the call, there were 14 people left in this church, and the average age was probably 78 to 80. And they said, listen, we, we heard you guys care about dying churches. Would you talk with us? Because <laughs> we're dying, <laughs> and we don't know what to do. And so a few of us hopped in, in uh, our van. We drove down to Lahana, and we, we spent an afternoon with these 14 sweet saints who love Jesus and love their church. And they're like, what do we do? We don't want this to close. We want to reach this community with the good news of the gospel. Can you help us? Well, that began a partnership with our church and this church that we call replanting, where we were able to come alongside those 14 and together begin to dream about and pray about and move forward into a new season of ministry for this church in this community. So we bring support, not just financially, but people. We had been raising up a replanter who felt called, couldn't wait to go into a dying church, to love those people, to preach the word, to love the community, to begin to engage that once again. Well, by God's grace... And by the way, this kind of thing is happening all over the country. The Lord wasn't done with that church. (laughs) And he, by his grace, who works in the midst of our weakness, began to slowly bring that church back to life. In fact, I remember one of the 14 ladies, when I asked the question, I always love to ask the question, man, if you could just, let's just dream for a second. Like, if you could see God do anything in this church, what would you want to see? And one of these sweet ladies in tears said, I pray, man, I'd love to hear babies crying again. I remember when there were babies crying and it used to drive us nuts, but boy, I miss that sound. You know what I mean? I can remember coming back just a couple years ago after we had gone through this process and there were about 40 or 50 people now. We're not talking some huge church. You know, most churches in America, 90% of churches are 120 people or less. But she just beelined me because I was preaching that morning. And she's, oh, pastor, do you hear that? And there's kids crying and running around. She's like, we prayed for this. We prayed for this. I can die anytime now. I can die anytime. We saw it. God answered the prayer. We did this. And I go, that's why we do this. Because the church matters. Those little babies matter. Families matter. The community matters. Now, listen, fast forward to this last year. That church has become a church of about 80 to 100 healthy. It's a healthy church. 
And guess what? They were approached by a dying church about 20 minutes away in Los Animas, Colorado, Parkview Baptist Church. And they said, we've seen what God has done in your church. Could you help us? And you know what that church in Lahana is doing now? With joy, they're helping to revitalize and replant this church in Los Animas. All that's happened within about five, a five to six year period. That's what I mean when I say partnership brings encouragement and hope. Are you kidding me? Those are two churches most people don't give a rip about. And I can tell you what the world says. Dude, we want that building. <laughs> and we want to do stuff with that building. And it's not worship King Jesus in that building. You know what I mean? And so here's the point. Partnership can make this happen. One church can't do this. Here's number three. Partnership fuels the mission Christ has given us to make disciples of all nations. Listen, Jesus has made it crystal clear. And I know who I'm talking to. So I know you guys get this. You get this. That Jesus Christ has called us whatever time we have left, and we don't know how much time. You don't know if you've got a day, a week, maybe you've got 30 years, maybe you've got 60 years. I don't know. I don't know. But what I know is this. He's made it really clear what he wants us to be about in the days that we have, and that's make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God. That's what he has called us to be about. In fact, in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, we, we, you, you're familiar with this passage if you've been in the church at all. It's, it's called the Great Commission. These are Jesus' last words before he ascends to heaven. Now, I don't know if you've ever been with anybody before, right before they die, but last words matter. When people are speaking last words, I've been there. You want to listen really carefully because what they're going to share really, really matters. These are Jesus' last words. And what does he say of all the things he could say? Matthew 28, 19 to 20, we read this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Everybody say go. go. Say it louder. Go. go. He says go. He says go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is the mission every Christian has been called to, but we don't pursue this mission as individuals. We don't just pursue this mission as my church is into this. We pursue this mission as the body of Christ, universal, together. And yes, it's individual, and yes, it's individual churches, but the bigger picture is, man, if we're gonna see this become a reality, we need each other, man. This is a big world with a lot of people far from Christ. And so if we're going to see this great commission become a reality, we've got a partner. Partnership fuels the mission that Christ has given us to make disciples of all nations. We need one another. Here's number four. Partnership displays God-glorifying unity. God-glorifying unity. One of the themes you see over and over again in Scripture is God's deep desire for unity among his people. I don't think we think about this enough. One of the things I love about my friend Jeremy is he highlights this all the time, and it's so good. God loves unity in his church, and he hates disunity. He hates it. He hates it. Do you hear that? He loves unity. He hates disunity. And my fear is sometimes we don't take that as seriously as we should. We don't tremble before the Lord. Who am I, Lord? Oh, God, forgive me for not pursuing unity in your body. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And what I can tell you is the reason we can have the same mind and the same judgment as believers is because we have the mind of Christ. And so you got to be working really hard. you got to be pretty serious about doing the devil's business if you want to fight the mind of Christ. We are called to be conformed by the grace of God through the power of the Spirit, be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that is displayed in unity and love for one another as believers. 1 Peter 3.8, amen, brother. And 1 Peter 3.8, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. Here's what I know about me, man. When my heart's not tender, I'm not, I'm not pursuing unity. When my heart's not tender and I get selfish and I could so easily get selfish, I'm thinking about me. I'm not thinking about the body. Peter's saying, look, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. A humble mind. Psalm 133.1. Behold, how good and pleasant. I, there, there is joy in the psalmist's voice, I promise you. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, exclamation mark. What a joy. You know what I see as I'm just walking around this morning, and I'm seeing people talking and laughing and, and hugging. I see unity, and I see joy in that. And the Lord is so glorified in that. The world thinks it's weird, but guess what? That shouldn't surprise us. There's a supernatural love and unity and joy amongst the believers that is light in a dark world. That's just reality. Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17, he prayed for unity. The very Son of God prayed for unity, not only for his disciples, but for every one of us who would follow him. Let me just read John 17, 20 and 21. Jesus says, I pray, he's praying, I pray not only for these, the disciples specifically he's talking about among him, he says, but also for those who believe in me through their word, because this gospel would be passed down. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. And then check this out. So that, so that the world may believe you have sent me. Like you catch that? Like Jesus is saying our unity as Christians is critical to the spread of the gospel that our lost world might come to know and believe in Christ. It is that significant. Friends, when churches partner together with humility and with joy, we display the kind of humility that Jesus prayed for, the, the kind of unity that God loves, the kind of unity that transforms hearts, the kind of unity that brings him glory. Finally, number five, a fifth reason why churches should partner together is because, quite frankly, and this isn't an overly spiritual one, and yet I think maybe it's more spiritual than we think, it makes ministry a lot more fun and joy-filled. <laughs> you know, ministry is hard. And I'm not just talking about pastors here. I'm saying as Christians, we're all called to be ministers of the gospel in different ways. And ministry is really hard. It's really hard in a world that's fallen and broken. Christians can feel alone. What I can tell you is churches feel isolated. And I'll tell you this, man. The joy of the Lord only increases when you get around your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the burden that we carry alone is a little lighter when we get to carry it with brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? 
You know that in your own life. But that's at the heart of what we're talking about here. I'll tell you this, just from my own experience, I was thinking about this. I've been blessed by the Lord to serve in pastoral ministry for about 25 years in different churches. What I can tell you with all genuine integrity is I've never had more joy and more fun. And I, and I say fun, I mean fun. Than, than the ministry that I'm doing right now, and here's why I can tell you I think the biggest reason is for that. Is because of the incredible churches made up of amazing brothers and sisters in Christ, like you guys, that our church gets to partner with like week in and week out, not only in Colorado, but around the U.S. and the world. There's something about it, man. There's something about it. We're doing this together. We're not alone. And that joy that comes from partnership, we need that. We need that. And I think God wants to give it to us. So just by way of review, okay, so let's look at these five reasons why. Why should churches partner together? Let me review. Partnership is biblical, first and foremost. It provides the encouragement and hope that churches need from one another. It fuels the mission Christ has given us to make disciples of all nations. Partnership displays God-glorifying unity. And number five, partnership helps to make ministry a lot more fun and joy-filled. Now, great. I'm not done yet. That's just the first part of this. You may read that and go, cool, I'm convinced. That makes sense. Those are good arguments. But I don't think Jesus is really interested in us in just agreeing that it's important. I think it starts there. But the second question that I, I offered earlier that I bring up again is, okay, well then what does healthy church partnership actually take? That's a different question. Why is it important? Well, we've just talked about some of the reasons why it's so important. But what does it actually take to do it? To see this live out so it's not just theory, but it's actually our experience as Christians and churches. Listen, there are many things that healthy church partnerships take. Again, we can look at a lot of things, but I think there are four that are right at the top. And I would say these are four essentials. If these four things aren't in place in our hearts and in our churches, partnership is just not going to happen the way God desires it to happen. So let's go through these. Number one, shared conviction. Shared conviction. Now, here's what I mean when I'm saying shared conviction, specifically here. What I'm saying is we have to be convicted by the Spirit of God that church partnership matters to God and therefore matters to us. And I mentioned this earlier, and it's just true. Most churches aren't really pumped about partnership. It almost feels like, yeah, I guess we have to because the Bible says something about that. The only way you're going to get pumped about it, and I believe begin to see fruit that only can be explained by the power of the Spirit, is if you are convicted, like, we have to do this. We have to do this. And what I believe is once you are convicted, you have to do this, it becomes a joy to do it. And here's why conviction is so important. And this is true in, with anything in the Christian life. Where there's not conviction, it's just way too easy for churches to become isolated. It's just way too easy in our fallenness and our selfishness. It's the same thing as Christians to become inward focused, separate ourselves, see others as the enemy. It's just too easy. Here's what conviction does. Conviction is what drives churches to actually pray for and with one another like we did last night. Conviction drives us to do crazy things that doesn't make sense to the world, like serve dying churches and other believers who may not be able to give anything back to you. Like conviction leads you to radically sacrifice for one another as churches for the long haul. Why? Because we believe it matters to God. 
And because it matters to God, man, it matters to us. But you have to start there. Without conviction, all this talk, it will, it will never see any fruit. It just won't happen. So it starts there. Here's number two. Shared authority. There has to be a shared authority. I talked about the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28 just a few moments ago, but there's a verse that oftentimes we skip over. In fact, I did when we come to the Great Commission, and it's verse 18. Verse 18 of Matthew 28, 18 to 20. I want you to hear this, where Jesus says this in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, speaking to the disciples, all authority, everybody say authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not you guys, me, Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, you're not alone in this. I am with you always to the very end of the age. I will tell you this, in our observation with the Calvary family, the number one challenge in most declining and dying churches, the number one issue in churches that are divided, where there's just a lot of division, it's not healthy, is the issue of authority. Who actually has authority in this church? It's an authority issue. Either King Jesus and his word have authority or someone or something else will. Some cause, some personality in the church, some committee, something else will. And here's what I can tell you. If something has the authority besides King Jesus and the word of God, you're in trouble really fast. Because Jesus said, I have authority. The Father has given me authority. Jesus alone purchased the church of Christ with his own blood, purchased you with his own blood. He alone has authority. And I would say this, for the true Christian, if you're in here today, here's what your heart should do if you're surrendered to Jesus. You should celebrate the fact that he's the authority in my life. You should rejoice the fact that he saved you and now he's Lord. He knows what's best for you. He does. He knows what's best for you, better than you know what's best for you. He's really clear, and he's given us his clear word that we might joyfully submit to him and submit to his word. And friends, the same is true for churches. I can tell you, we work with churches that are not submitted to King Jesus and his word. They're just not. And you walk in, and they're sick, and they're dying, and they really have no interest in doing what Jesus wants them to do. What they want is to keep the organization alive. They have different motives. The Spirit of God doesn't bless that. He doesn't bless that. He blesses and works in churches that go, Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord over this church. This isn't my church. That's not my pew. That's not my ministry. Are you kidding me? It's, the, it's King Jesus's. And it's joy to proclaim that and to actually live that. On the other hand, we can tell you this. When we see churches that are humble and submit to the kingship of Christ, it never shocks us when the Spirit begins to do incredible things because they want what Jesus wants. Listen, partnership doesn't happen unless you have churches and believers that are submitted to the authority of King Jesus. Bottom line. 
Here's number three, shared humility. Shared humility. This is so important. Philippians 2 gives us one of the most powerful pictures of humility in all of Scripture. I would encourage you, if you haven't read and prayed through, meditated on Philippians 2 in a while, it'll be good for your soul to do that. It'll be convicting, and it'll be encouraging, but it'll take your eyes back to Jesus and the heart of Jesus. In verses 3 and 4 of Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says this. He says that Christ followers should do nothing. Like, listen to this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then he says this, and this is so hard for us in our pride and our ego. It's like, I don't want to do this. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This kind of humility, friends, is absolutely critical, again, not only for our lives as Christians, but for our churches as we think through working together in partnership, looking out for the needs, think about this, it's a shift, of other churches. Like you're driving down the street and you start praying, God, at a minimum, I need to be more prayerful for that church. I need to pray for them. Lord, my heart breaks for them. Lord, I wonder if there's ways we can help them. That's a huge shift. It's not just me, 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 and my church. It's about the body. It's looking outward. Humility leads us to care and encourage and love and want to be generous with other churches. And that's Christ-like humility. That's the fruit of that. Now, here's the flip side of that that I just have to name. I don't want to be Captain Negative here, but I just got to name it. There is nothing more disheartening and more, um, more common, I would say, you could see, than the opposite of this. And that is churches and church pastors that see each other as competition. They see each other as a threat to their little kingdom. Friends, you know what? The, the, the source of that is not Jesus, it's the devil. It's Satan himself. That we would see other Bible-believing, I'm, talk, I'm talking Bible-believing, regenerated churches and believers, to see them as a threat, to see them as competition. Listen, there's no place for territorialism in the body of Christ. Partnership helps you to proactively fight that mindset. And I can tell you it can creep into all of us so easily. In fact, Philippians 2 says when that territorialism creeps in, it's, it's, it's the result of selfish ambition and conceit. Like in Denver, if you don't know much about Denver, we are a highly unchurched city, incredibly progressive in every way possible. Not long ago, we were looking at planting a church in an area of Denver that statistically has like 200,000 people and, you know, 90% don't know Jesus. And we got a call from a church that basically said, we're not letting you in. We're not letting you into this area. 200,000 people. This church, by the way, averages probably about 120 on a Sunday. And there was an SBC church in our own denomination. And they said, we don't want you in here. We don't want you in here. In fact, we're not going to let you in here. We're going to make it a real problem for you to get in here. And I share that with you because I remember I was so taken aback. And I'm like, what has happened, Lord, to your body? <laughs> what has happened to your leaders that instead of saying, 
brother, this is what I tell people, we are like ants trying to eat an elephant out here in Denver. Man, we got so many people to reach. Come on, let's do this together. The, the, instead, the reaction was, don't you dare come near us. The way church, Redeemer Church, you have to fight that tooth and nail. You've got to set an example for Springfield that that doesn't have any place here, man. You've got to be a light in Springfield that says, man, there's another way, and it's the Jesus way. And that's we work together. We are for one another. We want to plant churches, whatever you need, man. We want to see the gospel go forth. That's what we need more of. We need churches that intentionally fight territorialism through humble, committed partnership. Now listen, I know at Calvary Inglewood, we can't control what other pastors and churches are going to say, and we're going to just keep loving them. We're going to keep loving them. We're going to keep encouraging them. We're going to keep praying for them. But we're also saying, God, we want to set an example of what joyful partnership and collaboration and, and, and fighting territorialism looks like. Denver needs that. Springfield needs that. The world needs that. Bottom line. Finally, number four. Here's my last point. A shared mission. A shared mission. I'm not just talking here about like all of us getting in a circle and singing Kumbaya and like this is great. We're all together. Isn't this fun? No, partnership ultimately leads to the mission that Jesus gave us. Like there's a mission. We're headed somewhere. Does that make sense? We've got to do something. And what I would say is partnership is what fuels that mission. And, and you can look at it in different ways. We looked at the Great Commission. That's part of it. Here's how I would just summarize the mission of our churches, okay, all of us. It's to make joyful, passionate disciples of Jesus through healthy, biblical, mission-minded churches for the glory of God. That's what we are called to be about as believers. That's what the church is called to be about. And what I know is, if there's not clarity on this mission, we'll get off track and we'll make a hundred other things the mission. We'll make the wrong things the mission. We'll be about this cause or this whatever, and we'll get off track in a hurry. We've got to stay so crystal clear on what the mission is to make joyful, passionate disciples of Jesus through healthy, biblical, mission-minded churches for the glory of God. That's what the New Testament teaches. And that's what we're called to be about. And that's what we are to partner together to pursue. Listen, as, as churches, guys, we are better together. We just are. We're better together. And I hope you're beginning to see that. I hope you already believe that. This is the way God has designed the church to function together, the larger body of Christ. I want you to just imagine for a second what God could do through churches that partner like this. I mean, it's fun to start dreaming about what God could do in a million different ways. Shared conviction, shared authority, shared humility, shared mission. Can you imagine what God could do? Through churches like, can you imagine what he could do in Springfield? What God could do for his glory. What he could do in Denver. What he could do around the world. Churches, this is what I would say. The good news in all of this, and this is where I want to land the plane. Don't check out quite yet. The good news in all of this is that we could never pull this thing off. Everything I've said, we can't do. <laughs> Let's pray. You know, it's like, no. 
everything I've said we can't do. But Christ can. Christ can through you and you and you. He can through our churches. Christ can. Christ wants to. So it begins dying so that he might bring us back to life and love through us and partner through us and be humble through us. That's what we're talking about. That's what Paul means when he says, what does he say in Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but what? Christ lives in me. This is the good news of the gospel. Listen, he's not just saying, go do this. He's saying, I'm gonna give you everything you need to accomplish this mission that I'm sending you out to do. But it begins by dying to yourself, surrendering to Christ, abiding in Christ, trusting in his Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. The Lord Jesus promises to be with us. He promises to empower this. He promises that we as churches, these are the four words I kept thinking about all week, what he wants to see happen through us as we humbly submit to him is Christ-exalting, God-glorifying, disciple-making, church-multiplying partnership until he returns. Glory. Glory. What a Savior, amen? What a Savior. What, what a mission that we've been called to. And in a few minutes, we're going to be going to the Lord's Supper. As we come to the Lord's Supper today and we look at our sin and we name our sin and we remember the cross of Christ and we remember the gospel, but we also remember today, Lord Jesus, you've saved me for a mission. You've saved me to do something and you give me the power to do something. And at the heart of that is to partner with other believers you have saved to take your message and your fame to the ends of the earth. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you are an, a wonderful Savior, Lord. You are our king. You are our authority. We declare it together right now. And so, Lord, we pray even now that you would do in us what only you can do. Lord, we know that as people, and I put myself at the front of the line, I'm a sinner. I'm selfish. There's so many ways that the old man creeps in, and yet my hope is the fact that I know you have saved me, redeemed me, and you're sanctifying me. And Lord, I pray this for all my brothers and sisters in this room. God, would you continue your work of sanctification? We know you will. But as part of that, would you soften our hearts and help us fall more in love, not only with one another as brothers and sisters in this room, but fall more in love with the body of Christ globally, fall more in love with other churches, and be willing to do whatever it takes to link arms for the sake of your mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.